We finished leading this summer mission, and it's the only thing we know in the summer. Uh, Quinn was literally one year, one year old when we started this. Now she's 11. My kids don't know anything else. And so we're moving into a new beginning. Um, I am no stranger to new beginnings. I'm a military kid. My mom married my stepdad when I was six, and we immediately started moving. I had a lot of different experiences growing up. In fact, my freshman year of high school was in Stafford, Virginia. My sophomore year of high school was in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. My junior year of high school was in Great Falls, Montana. And my senior year, my parents and my sister moved to Panama, Central America, and I stayed behind and lived with a different family so I could graduate in the States. I had four different high school experiences, four new beginnings. That was tough for me, but also beautiful. Then I graduated from high school in Montana, came all the way over to the East Coast and went to Virginia Tech. That was a new beginning for me as well. Knew absolutely nobody at that school. And it was difficult for me, but very, very good. And the new beginning I experienced there was liberating. You can eat whenever you want, go to sleep whenever you want, study whenever you want, go to class whenever you want. That's a new beginning, and it's formative for all of us. But then something significant happened to me January of my freshman year. January of my freshman year, I met Jesus Christ. I understood what it meant to be in a personal relationship with the God of the universe, and that was a new beginning. I was changed by the goodness and grace of God in ways I never thought were possible. I was rescued by God, not from a life of licentiousness and indulgence in worldly pleasures, but from a life of religiosity and pompous belief that God accepted me because I was a good person. I tried to buy the favor of God by being what I thought was good, moral, and right. I thought I was good with God by what has been called my damnable good works. I repented of that when I was saved at the age of 19. And I find myself confessing and repenting of that same holier-than-thou attitude all the time in the present day. I've been transformed by God, not because I know a bunch of Christian cliches, which I do, a bunch of Bible verses, which I do, and the right spiritual mask to put on around other people so I look the part. I've been transformed because of his grace. I have experienced a new beginning, a fresh start. Do you feel like you can use a fresh start this morning? We're going to read um, a passage of Scripture today, a short part of Scripture, that might be the most famous part of the Bible. So I'm tackling something that you've probably heard, you've probably heard preached, maybe you've studied if you've been around the church for any amount of time, but I'm going to ask you something very specific. Do not check out. So I'm talking to you who's been here for a long time, and I'm talking to you who's a high school kid, and I'm talking to all you parents in the back with your kids trying to get them to shut up right now, okay? Do not check out. Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 24. This is the story of the prodigal sons, plural, sons. 
but we're just going to talk about the one son this morning. You know, the younger son is often the son that is talked about as someone who is the person who does not know God, and then they come to know him, and while that is true and a good parallel, what I want you to do is think of yourself through the eyes of the younger son. The younger son is you. So a lot of times we have a tendency to listen to these stories or hear a verse of Scripture and go, oh, man, if that person that I know would have just listened to that sermon. Or if the person next to me, if I would just elbow them and have them pay attention because they need to listen to this message. No, you. You are the younger son, okay? Just for like 25, 35 minutes, okay? You are the younger son. Not your friend, not your mom, not your sibling, not your spouse, you. Let's start with um, verse 11. Go through 16. We'll read it in two chunks. And he said, so this is Jesus speaking. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to f- fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Let's pause right there. This is a younger son who comes to his father and basically says this, give me my money, give me my inheritance, I wish you were dead, I'm out. This is rebellion. This is pretty easy to spot rebellion. Rebellion on a very personal and deeply painful level, if you think about it from the perspective of the dad. A rebellion that forces our gaze to glare at the fact that God offers us everything, yet we choose to go our own way. God offers you, the younger son, everything, and yet you choose to go your own way. Yes, this posture and pattern so often characterizes the lives of far too many people who would call themselves Christians. We rebel against God. We want God's stuff, not God himself. Jeremiah 2.13 is God speaking. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out, out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So cisterns were these like clay pots, these giant clay pots that they would bury under the ground and fill them with fresh water. It's kind of like a a well, often that would be uh, buried next to a home, so they'd have access to water whenever they want to. But every now and then, the clay would crack or break, and naturally, when that would happen, the water would spill out into the earth around it, and mud and dirt would get into that, and then it would be broken and nasty, and you wouldn't be able to drink from it. So that's what the illustration here is. God is saying, you've basically rejected me, you've forsaken me, you've rebelled against me, the fountain of living waters, constantly flowing water, 
fresh, beautiful, sweet, cold water to drink from any time you want to. We've said, nah, I'll go drink from the broken cistern where there's dirt and mud and disgustingness. This is akin to being invited to sit at a table of a very important person, and they offer you the most elegant and hunger-satisfying banquet. Sit, eat, it will be delicious, everything you've ever wanted, in a place of honor, and yet we reject it to say, nah, I'm going to go ahead and root through the dumpster out back in the alley with the rats. We say no to the fountain of living waters. We reject him and root through the trash in the alley. But by God's grace, there are wake-up moments. There are realizations of the truth that, what am I doing? Why am I rejecting the meal to root through the trash in, in the back of the, of the restaurant? So you never, you never know that exact moment when you fall asleep, right? When you go to sleep at night, you can say, you know, I went to bed at like 11. I don't know exactly when I fell asleep. Maybe like 11.15 or something like that. You know that exact moment. For my wife, it's like 9.30 because um, she goes to bed like super early. Uh, you never know that moment, that, you, that, that exact moment when you fall asleep. But you always know that moment when you wake up, right? Your alarm goes off on your phone. You know it's exactly 6.45. Or for some of you, 11.30, whatever it is. Or you look at your alarm clock, and you know that exact moment that you wake up. And this is how we can be mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually as well. We kind of drift off to sleep. It's a slow burn. We don't know that exact moment that we found ourselves rooting in the trash. But we always know that exact moment when we wake up. Now, there's tons of examples I can give you here uh, where you have these wake-up moments in life, right? I'm out of shape. You run after your kid, and you're like, oh, whew, I'm winded. Oh, I'm 35, and I'm out of shape. Um, I watch too much Netflix. Man, I binged Stranger Things season four last night. All of it, which is pretty amazing if you did that. Um, um, I don't eat healthy. Uh, I play too many video games. I need to treat my wife better. I'm always anxious. I constantly compare myself to others in order to justify where I'm at on this imaginary scale of good and bad. I need to be more kind to my kids. All I think about is comfort, prestige, and making it up the next rung of the ladder. I am legitimately addicted to pornography. Whatever it could be in your life, you have these wake-up moments. The point is, it could be anything. And if we're open to God's gracious wake-up moment will want to change. Those moments are moments of grace. Let's look at verse 17. When he came to himself, but when he came to himself, that's the wake-up moment. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I don't want to be where I've been anymore. I'm sick of living the way that I'm living. 
when he came to his senses, when he woke up. A buddy of mine, who was my roommate my junior and senior year, had one of those, for him, literal wake-up moments. I became a Christian, like I told you, January of my freshman year. Eric, who was my roommate, junior and senior year, he became a Christian and entered into a relationship with God a few months before me in the fall. He came to Christian, or came to Virginia Tech not as a Christian, just like me. I was a good kid. He was the partier. He had a literal wake-up moment in November of our freshman year when he woke up in the morning, under a bush, across the street from our dorm, in his right hand was a, a bag, a full bag of uneaten Taco Bell, and in his left hand was a TV remote from one of the TVs back in the dorm. He had no idea how the remote got in his hands. He had no memory of going to Taco Bell. He had no idea why he was under a bush. And he said, I've got to change. I've got to change. He was invited to a Bible study in the dorm that he was in. He started going to that Bible study. God saved him, and he had that wake-up moment. This is the moment for the younger son as well. He finds himself longing to feed himself with the stuff, the slop that he's giving to the pigs, and he's like, I've got to change. I've got to go back. So there's a return here to start over. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, uh, this, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is a humble return. But what's the father's reaction? Or maybe a better question would be, how do you think the father should react in this moment. So let's just say you have a kid. Again, imagine yourself in this scenario. You have a kid who comes to you and says this, mom or dad, I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. But I do love that you have money. So give me my money that I'm owed just because I'm your kid and I wish you were dead. So imagine that scenario. That kid says that to you. How would you react to a child who returned after saying something like that to your face? Not good. I'd be like, well, well, well. Look who it is. The person who wished me dead and just wanted my stuff. You'd probably do that too if you're honest, right? But how does the father react in the story? Note the words. Compassion. He threw his arms around him. He kissed him. 
he obviously recognized that he wasn't clothed well, so he put a robe on him. He put a ring on his hand, saying, hey, you're part of the family. That's what that means. Put sandals on his feet. Celebrate. Let's celebrate. He even cuts him off. Look at verse 19. 19, he's got this long speech that he, I'm no longer worthy to be called. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then verses 21 and 22, I have sinned against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father just cuts him off. He's like, no, no, no. We're not going to listen to any more of this rehearsed speech. You're welcome here. I'm so glad you're home. Is this how we view God when we want to start over and have a new beginning? I'll confess that I don't always believe that God's attitude or, or posture towards me is this. I think sometimes, not always, sometimes that God, and certainly God's people in the church, will be mad and ashamed of me when I've screwed up. Yet scripture is very specific at how God looks at us when we return to him. He lovingly embraces us. When you warn someone not to do something, and then they go do it anyway, and it doesn't turn out well for them, we have the I told you so mentality, right? Told you so. You shouldn't have done that, stupid. In fact, in fact this is the exact response, if you read on in the story, of the older brother. He's angry. He's bitter. He didn't earn it the way I did mentality. Not so with God. Now, if you've been in this church for a while, this, this, this passage might seem a little bit on the nose this morning. This was prepared for me to speak on this several months ago. Coincidence? No. So I want you to pause for a minute and ask yourself this question. Again, you are the younger brother. Ask yourself this question. Do you think Jesus regrets getting involved with you? A friend of mine asked that question once. If the answer is yes, that means that Jesus is a fool because his judgment was wrong about you, that God was wrong. But God is not an idiot. And he doesn't regret getting involved with you. When you're more needy in life, God doesn't get exasperated and roll his eyes thinking, ugh, here they go again. They're so high maintenance. No, he lights up because it's an opportunity for him to show you more of his grace, more of himself. But we think that oh, we, got, we got so much stuff in our lives that prevent us from knowing God. My senior year, I lived with four guys. Eric was one of them. And I'm a pretty neat guy. If you know me, like, I'm a pretty neat and, like, kind of ordered dude. And I was even this way back in college. And I was the only one who emptied the trash in our kitchen. I was the only one who took it out. So being self-righteous at one point, I decided I'm not going to take out the trash anymore. We'll have them do it. We'll see what happens. So then they started setting their trash as it filled up next to the garbage. Open a can, pour out whatever, put the can on the ground. 
box of mac and cheese, throw it on the ground next to the trash. It started to build and build and build. A week went by. Nobody emptied the trash. And we all got together as roommates, and I was like, is somebody going to take out the trash besides me? And they're like, no, let's have a competition and see how long we can go without taking out the trash. <laughs> and then the word competition went into my stupid lizard brain, and I was like, I'm down. And so it was us four versus what we called Mount Trashmore. A week went by, like I told you, another week went by. Three weeks went by. Four weeks went by. We got to a point, our, our trash can was in this kind of like area that was like a galley kitchen next to the, the, the fridge and the, sink and the sink and the counter and stuff like that. It got to the point where if we had a piece of trash, we would just wad it up, walk next to, just, just chuck it into the room. The trash got so big that we were like, this is insane. We had a fruit fly infestation. It was awful. So Thanksgiving break rolled around, and we decided uh, that we needed to take it out. I, I felt overwhelmed as I saw it. As it built and built and built, I was like, there's too much there to take out. I can't do it by myself. So we all gathered together. We got, like, tons of bags, took out all the trash. There was a pumpkin there from Halloween that had rotted. And when we picked it up, it, like, like, disintegrated, and there was, like, orange goo that splashed all over our feet. It was awful. It was, we were stupid. College boys are stupid. That's the point of this story. But <laughs> if I'll get an amen for anything, it'll be that. But I remember this feeling as the weeks went by that the garbage was too big to clean up. I felt like there was so much there, it felt overwhelming, and I just left it. Sometimes the garbage in our lives can be so overwhelming that we think we're too much of a project for Jesus to clean up. It grieves God when we sin. Of course it grieves God when we sin. Because obedience to God is love toward him. But, hear me on this, our rebellion and our failures do not define us. Your rebellion and your failures do not define you. The garbage in the corners of your heart can be overwhelming, but they do not define you. God's grace does. His loving grace is your identity as a Christian. Identity is being thrown around all the time in our culture. What's my identity? Am I this? Am I this? Am I this? If you're a Christian, your identity is God's grace. So if you're feeling distress in life right now, for whatever reason, frustration about your circumstances, frustration with others in your life, frustration with yourself even, if you're distressed about life, Look to places like Romans 8.35. Again, another famous verse that we read and know. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? When you read this, you're like, oh, tribulation? Wow, that's a lot. Uh, distress, persecution. Ooh. Uh, famine, that's like dying. from Nakedness, wow. There's like a lot of danger, sword. There's a lot of sexy words in here. That we go, oh, that, but we skip over the second word, distress. Distress. 
your distress about your life cannot separate you from the love of God. Your distress cannot separate you from the love of God. Your distress and disgust with your own life and previous behavior is not a barrier between the love of God and you. He is just as present in your life in the garbage times as he is when you're feeling it, with your hands in the air, worshiping, with tears streaming down your face. He is always with you. He's with you at the retreat when you feel it. He's with you after the retreat when the high is gone. He's with you all the time. He's with you when you're brushing your teeth. He's with you when you're sitting there reading your Bible diligently. He's with you when you're yelling at your kids. He's with you when you're fixing dinner. He's with you when you're scrolling your phone on TikTok. He's with you when you're at a Bible study. He is always with you. Don't get this twisted. A friend of mine said, maturity in the Christian life is needing Jesus more, not needing Jesus less. So if you have kids, your goal as a parent is to shepherd your child in a way that leads them into greater and greater independence from you so they become a functioning adult on their own. That's what parenting is. Independent from you. But it's exactly the opposite in your relationship with God. It's exactly the opposite. His goal is to raise you up in a way that makes you more and more dependent on him as you grow into maturity. Because spiritual maturity is recognizing your dependence on Christ, not your independence from Christ. So when you think about it, this is probably the exact opposite of everything you've thought about the Christian life and Christian growth up until maybe right now. You think that the mature people... They don't need God anymore. They get better and better and better. And so they know all the things. They've done all the things. So they're kind of, they, they've got it. They're like spiritual giants. No big deal, right? But no, it's exactly the opposite. The older you get, the more mature you get, the more you realize how much you need Jesus. You're not walking away from him. You're getting closer and closer to him. Listen to me. Taking this down into the depths of your heart will drive the roots of the gospel deep into your soul. So that when bumps come, when doubts arise, when challenges are made to your faith, when deconstruction comes to your front door, when the questions about Biblical sexual ethics out there are not theoretical anymore. They're like in the walls of your own home with your kids. When life gets hard, not if, when. The tree roots of depth in the beauty and the truth of the gospel will be so strong and deep, you won't, you won't get rattled in a way that sees so many others to the exit door of Christianity. And again, I've been in ministry for 23 years. I've seen a lot of people walk away. 
Instead, you'll experience a deeper appreciation and love for your Savior because the foundation is rock solid on the truth, the truth of the Word of God in your life, and it will not be shaken. God is good. He loves you. You're a sinner, a rebel, who has turned your back on God. But God made a way for your rebellion to be canceled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Saying yes to his grace, unearned love for you, welcomes you into the family forever. But what if I do something really bad? Forever. But what if I continue to be messy and kind of a problem for others and God because I, forever. This message is God's great welcome to everyone. He loves you for who you are, not for what you've done. I made a, made a commitment very early on with my girls to tell them, I love you. Do you know why daddy loves you? Because you're mine. I don't love you because you performed well at that soccer game, which I'm glad you did. I don't love you because you got a good grade this semester. It's great. I love you because you're mine. You belong to me. And God says the same thing to you. I love you because you're mine. Not because you went to church. Not because you gave a lot of money to the church. Not because you went to the Bible study. Not because you went to the retreat. Not because of whatever it may be. God loves you because you're his. Full stop. What a great message this is. The gospel. God doesn't want us to work off our sins like we think we should. Make me like one of your hired men. No. He runs to embrace us when we turn to him. He says, let's celebrate. My child was dead and has now come to life. They were lost and now they're found. Come to him in faith and trust him to embrace us, even in all of our filth. Now, Kenny, Pastor Kenny last week decided to read a kid's story, and I was like, man, you're stealing my flavor on this. But I was committed, so I'm going to read a story to you, a kid's story. There's a lot of truth in kid's stories, a lot of good truth. This is the story of the Wemmicks. Perhaps you know it. The Wemmicks were small wooden people. Each of the wooden people was carved by a woodworker named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village. And every Wemmick was different. Some had big noses. Others had large eyes. Some were tall and others were short. Some wore hats. Others wore coats. But all were made by the same carver and all lived in the village. All day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each Wemmick had a box of golden star stickers and a box of gray dot stickers. And up and down the streets, all over the city, people could be seen sticking stars or dots on one another. The pretty ones with smooth wood and fine paint always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint was chipped, the Wemmicks gave dots. The talented ones got stars too. Others, <clears throat> sorry, some could lift big sticks high above their heads. Others could jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words and could sing very pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. 
Some Wemmicks had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it would make them feel so good that they did something else and got another star. Others could do little. They got dots. Punchinello was one of those. He tried to jump high like others, but he always fell. And when he fell, others would gather around him and give him dots. Sometimes he fell and it would scar his wood so that people would give him more dots. He would try to explain why he fell and say something silly, and the Wemmicks would give him more dots. After a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in the water, and then people would give him another dot. In fact, he had so many gray dots that some people would come up and give him one without reason. He deserves lots of dots, the wooden people would agree with one another. He's not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm not a good Wemmick, he would say. The few times he went outside, he hung around with other Wemmicks who had lots of dots. He felt better around them. One day, he met a Wemmick who was unlike any he'd ever met. She had no dots and no stars. She was just wooden. Her name was Lula. It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers. It's just that the stickers didn't stick. Some admired Lula for having no dots, so they would run up and give her a star, but it would fall off. Some would look down on her for having no stars, so they would give her a dot, but that wouldn't stay either. That's the way I want to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless Wemmick how she did it. It's easy, Lula replied. Every day I go see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, Lula said, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why, Punchinello asked. Why don't you find out for yourself? Go up the hill. He's there. And with that, the Wemmick, with no marks, turned and skipped away. But he won't see me, Punchinello cried. But Lula didn't hear him. So Punchinello went home. He sat near a window and watched the wooden people as they scurried around, giving each other stars and dots. It's not right, he muttered to himself, and he resolved to go see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into the big shop. His wooden eyes widened at the size of everything. The stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here. And he turned to leave. But then he heard his name. Punchinello, the voice was deep and strong and made the Wemmick stop. Punchinello, good to see you. Come and let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You know my name? The little Wemmick asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down, picked him up, and set him on the bench. Hmm, the maker spoke thoughtfully as he inspected the gray circles. Looks like we've been given some bad marks. I didn't mean to, Eli. I tried really hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me. I don't care what the other Wemmicks think. You don't? Punchinello asked. No, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give stars or dots? They're Wemmicks, just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think, and I think you're special. Punchinello laughed. Me? Special? Why? I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My pain is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on his small wooden shoulders, and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. Every day I've, ho I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I, I came because I met someone who had no marks. 
I know. She told me about you, Eli said. Why don't the stickers stay on her? Because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? Punchinello, Troy? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about the stickers. I'm not sure I understand. You will, but it will take time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, just come and see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the Wemmick walked out the door, you are special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. You matter to God. And the stickers only stick if you let them. Even the dots you put on yourself. When we turn, he runs to embrace us. And we experience the new beginning. Some of you in here need to recognize your sin and have that wake-up moment that draws you back to the Lord or maybe draws you to God for the first time, like my friend Eric. Some of you in here need to stop trying to work off your sin and stop believing that you can live a life of personal sin management. I saw this story of a model who was filming a commercial with a lion, a grown lion. And in the, in the filming of the commercial, the lion attacked and mauled this model. And afterward, they were interviewing the lion handler, and he was like beside himself. He said, I have no idea why this lion would do something like that. I, I, I bought him early as a cub. I've raised him to be docile. He's never hurt anyone. I have no idea why he would attack this woman. And as I watched this story, I thought to myself, uh, it's a lion. It's a wild animal. Some of you have been treating your sin like that. I've known it for a long time. I've raised it since it was a cub. I, it wouldn't attack me. It would be fine. There is no such thing as personal sin management. Kill your sin or it will kill you. And don't wait. God isn't standing there with a clipboard and a checklist of all the bad things you've ever done, tapping his foot, waiting for you to come back with a scowl on his face. He embraces the fresh start and the new beginning. I want to end with this. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's dead. Behold, the new has come. The old is gone. The new is here. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. So act like it. Let me pray. God, uh, I pray that You would just work in my heart. Help me to know that you embrace me, that you love me, that you care about me, that you don't stand there with a scowl on your face, 
angry for the things that I've done. No, you run to embrace me when I fail. You run to show me your grace and love. I pray that that would be written on the hearts of the women and men, that the kids in here, that they would understand that God, that you run to embrace them when you sin. What we feel about you is often determined by how we respond when we sin. When we sin, and we know that we've sinned, many of us turn and run away from you, but I pray that that would not be true, that we would run toward you because you run toward us. You lovingly embrace us with your grace. You say, this child of mine was dead and is now alive. Let's celebrate. So I pray that we would live that way. We would live as a new creation. The old things about us have passed away. We would live in the new. We would kill our sin. We would execute it. Get rid of it. And live in your grace. We would live each day, each moment, as if we actually believe that what the Bible said is true. And that only happens by the power of your spirit through your grace. And I pray that you would do that for me and that you would do that for the people in this room. And if someone in here does not know you, if they have never had that wake-up moment, I pray that they would come to know you. They would talk to a friend. They would talk to a family member. They would talk to a pastor and say yes to you, yes to your grace, because you run to embrace us. We pray that that would happen in the power of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.